Feminist Killjoys, PhD, and our feminism, pop culture, and politics, as discussed by two professional Killjoys. I'm Rachel. And I'm Melody. And today we'll be discussing disability justice and crip life with our friend, Angela Carter. But first, Melody, where can our listeners find us on the internet? Everywhere. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review because they're fun to read and also help grow our listener pool. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We have a Facebook page and a community. And the official name of our community is Rachel. Feminist Killjoys Community dash WTF Power. Thank you. And we have a Twitter account, uh, FKJ underscore PhD. You can listen to our awesome mixtape mix on Spotify. And if you have extra money and want to support feminist media laborers, you can on our website. Just click on the birdie or we have a Patreon account uh, for people who want to support us uh, with a micro donation every month. And of course, my favorite way to communicate, email. You can reach us at fkj.phd at gmail.com. How are you awesome. doing, Rachel? Well, I'm sick, as you can probably tell by my voice. Um, I got, well, we haven't even talked since the holidays on air. So I had a 10-day stint of travel um, to Cleveland, drove to Cleveland, stayed in Cleveland for a bit for the holidays, then drove to St. Louis um, to see Logan's family, then drove back to Cleveland for a night, then drove back to Boston. So lots of time in the car, lots of travel. And I sort of like felt like a cold maybe coming on, and then, but it never did. And then, like, the day after I got home, I woke up, and it was more than a cold. It was the flu. So I've had the flu for a week, um, which is not great because it's, like, the busiest winter break of my life. And I'm teaching this online winter course, and I have to prep for four classes in the spring, and I have a job interview. And so that's a lot. But So I'm a little a little stressed out, but I've just been too sick to, like, worry too much. Um, so that's that. But good things are on the horizon because I'm getting healthy. And uh, some of my uh, dear friends from Minneapolis, uh, we are all having a reunion. So these are a community of people, Melody and I have talked about on the show before, our friend Jesus. Um, Jesus was sort of part of like a smaller unit of friends that we called Queer World um, that I was a part of. And so like our Queer World family is having a reunion. um, And our friend Jesus passed away, as we've talked about on the show before. Um, So we're having a little reunion uh, of those folks who were part of Queer World, um, and that's going to be good, and I'm going to be in Western Mass for a couple days to share community with those folks. That's great. Are most of the people now on the East Coast? Yeah, strangely, even though we all met in Minneapolis, three three of the, how many of there are of us total? Yeah, well, three of us are in Mass, and then one of us is in Philly, and then two, there's only two left in Minneapolis. So most, where most wow. of us are East Coast. Yeah, which is academia, I guess. Yeah, um, but based on academia, you should be all over the world, but or all over the country at least, but you're all... I, 
No, that's true. It's okay. just that New England is so concentrated with schools, so I think that's... Oh. So. Cool. Anyway, so that's that. What about you? How have you been? I've been good. I have the same kind of... I mean, I think every... The weeks before the semester starter is always stressful no matter what's going on. Um, like, my therapist was like, you should take a day off. I was like, you know what? I really understand why you're telling me to do that. But, like, the week before the semester is, like, not the day. The week maybe... Yeah. Anyways, so it's right. just, it's a hard time in general, but I've had a good, my holiday was fine, it's over with, it wasn't traumatic, so that is always like a success in my book. Um, there was another clituration, uh, remember, did I tell you about that, the all-female? But I don't remember, so why don't you remind us and our listeners? It was, it's Me. just a, uh, in Minneapolis, it's an all-female hip-hop night right. where they have like pop-up performances of female rappers and then they have female DJs. But the cool thing is that, that they all sit on the stage and watch each other perform. Like it's just like a collective and they all support each other. So it's just, uh, it's a really cool. That's super cool. Yeah. That's awesome. So that happened or that's about to happen tonight. No, it just happened uh, the day before new year's Eve. Okay. So cool. I got that out of the way. And then okay. I took the tax. We took a taxi home cause it was, negative 10 degrees out literally yeah as it does in minnesota and we had yeah. a we had a taxi driver from somalia so i just like asked him a million questions because i was a little tipsy and i don't think he was very uh, amused but yeah anyways, that was a fun night and uh let's see other good stuff is i got interviewed by a black newspaper in baltimore because they're starting to talk about bike inequity down there because they just got bike share so I talked to a black newspaper down there, which is awesome. I'm glad that they exist. And uh, yeah, I guess the, the well, we're going to talk with Angela soon, but um, I did want to throw this out there to probably bring back, bring up back later. But uh, I just found out that one of my students in my classes is deaf. And so um, I have to make some accommodations this semester. So that's going to be like a, a cool experience. I don't know how to phrase it, but I'm excited about it. But I'm just like, oh, I haven't had to think through my curriculum in that way yet. So right. it'll yeah. be um, a learning experience yeah. that I'm sure I will discuss because, you know, we're obviously very committed to being accessible and accommodating. And so right. try my right. best. Does your school have stuff set up for you, like to support you in and to support the student, first of all, obviously, um, but like anything to like provide you for yes yes uh, well we have a disability services center and then um there's going to be an interpreter for her every class and then there is one person that i can like call and like talk to uh but i mean i think for for my class it's really just making sure that all of the media that i show is closed captioned you know and our yeah. actually as a community college we got some award for being like way on top of our game with captioning like we have a crew of people at school that can caption mm -hmm. videos for us i've never mm -hmm. used that service because i switch up my videos so often like you know how it is it's like oh jimmy fallon talked about no dapple right. so i'm gonna play it at you know it so, yes, the, we definitely do have a lot of resources, especially for closed yep. captioning, but... Uh, yeah. Okay, cool. We'll, well yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure that'll, that'll come, that can come back up again in conversation, but um, do we want to really quickly talk about who is ruining the dinner party this week? Uh, these are all my choices, again, because I've been sitting in a ball of rage uh, between Christmas and <laughs> New Year's. 
Well, no, actually, I will say if the readers, readers, listeners are not uh, familiar or did not hear uh, in Minneapolis on January 1st, these two badass people um, went to the Vikings game, the football game and dropped a huge banner like they crawled up a they crawled up something that's like death defying and then they like hung yeah. themselves down from this like death defying thing and dropped a banner it was like talk about 2003 like anarchist right. protesting it was super money anyways yeah. very successful direct action um but it was funny watching the direct or the the news about it because everybody was obsessing over the security like <gasps> we are unsafe Oh, God. Uh, and and the reporters were like, you got to tell us how you got this stuff in. You have to understand that people are so worried about security. Right. All the while being like, security is like a theater production here in the United States. It yeah. means nothing. Um, it does nothing. And th- this action just shows that, you know. But right. at the same time, um, the security company figured out that you can very easily bring rope and banners inside when you're wearing winter clothing. You just like put it on underneath your eight layers of clothes that you have to wear when it's right. negative five degrees out. Right. So <laughs> it wasn't like they snuck in like metal equipment through a metal detector. Right. Yeah. So anyways, that's just, it's been frustrating to. Yeah, uh, totally. Because, you know. because and then, of this. Oh, sorry. Conversation. Well, just that the conversation becomes about security and not no dapple and the investment in the fucking pipeline that the, you, the about the state like that's that, you know, like that shouldn't be the conversation people are having and just it's frustrating. Yes, especially. Well, the because protesters are awesome. They had a press uh, press conference and yeah. the reporters kept asking them about all these logistical things that are actually pretty interesting to, to know about. And yeah. they just refused to talk, and they just kept repeating facts about the pipeline. Wow. Pipeline that's fucking rad. Yeah. That's awesome. I yeah. love that. They basically punked all the reporters. Right. And right. Yeah. Anyways, so the press release, or the, sorry, the press conference is uh, archived online that you can find through Unicorn Riot if you want to watch it, because it's interesting to listen to the reporters get really frustrated with them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, so there's that. And then also in Minnesota news, um, thank goodness, we talked about this last time, but the the coach for the Gophers football team that encouraged their their players to go boycott yeah. football because of a uh, sexual assault charge, yeah. um, he got fired. But then the person who's ruining the dinner, dinner party is our former coach, Coach K- Kill, who is like whining and being like, I'm never going to go to a football game at the Gopher Stadium again because you fired him. And it's like, are you guys like on the same planet? And (laughs) you have to be on a different planet when sports reporters are, are supporting what the school did and are talking in detail about how important title nine is. Right. And they say that, and they literally say that like these coaches don't understand the the repercussions of title nine and don't understand how important it is. That's when, you know, like the, the, you know, our conversation has shifted towards a more positive, uh, like a more like, it's not, it's not typical for sports reporters to side with a coach getting fired. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. This time they're anyway. So screw that guy. And then fuck Trump. This time, yeah. do you know about, you know about this, the fuck Trump? I don't think that I do. Tell me about this one. So Trump, the one thing that I'm like, 
I think, I don't know, Rachel, you might agree with this, is his his promise to bring more jobs back to the United States, which I'm yeah. all for, with a right. caveat of, like, making sure that they're union jobs, especially when they're manufacturing. Right. But whatever. So one of his, I don't know how this even went down, because he's a evil overlord, but he managed to c- persuade GM to stop um, the construction on the factory that they're building in Mexico and build one here instead. And when I heard that, I was like, oh, that's like great. Like I support us having more manufacturing jobs in the United States because the that getting disintegrated really ruined a lot of towns, as you know. And so that sounds good. But then NPR went down to that town in Mexico where the factory is and everybody's pissed because they all had jobs and he took away those yeah. jobs. And it, yeah. he did not talk about that when right. he was uh, promoting his move, uh, this U.S. factory move. Right. But it's super frustrating because he also doesn't want people from Mexico to come to the United States. So right. you're taking away right. jobs from them. What do you think that the... Right. You idiot. Com- completely yeah, I mean, I think that's been the thing why it's like, yeah, I mean, how, you know, he's anti-NAFTA and uh, talks about wanting to and, and talks negatively about the expansion of jobs overseas. But I think rightly, a lot of the Democrat, I mean, and Hillary in particular was like, OK, tell us, explain how you're going to get those jobs back and uh, destroying further destroying destroying the the Mexican economy is obviously not the fucking solution. And yeah, is like the fucking root, like globalization is the fucking root cause of at least Mexico to us immigration. And which is also just fucking problematic because the U S part of the U S used to be Mexico and it's just all fucked. Um, and it's fucked and he's a piece of human garbage and is running the dinner party. Yep. I've been wearing my, I, uh, I dug out some Obama shirts that I bought in mm-hmm. 2008, and I'm wearing them now. Just to wear. Fuck yeah. yeah. Awesome. I'm going to cry. I got, a, I got a Tupac t-shirt for Christmas. Do you have <gasps> one of those? Can we match in that? Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, you have one too, right? Yeah, so when we get our professional Photoshop or photo shoot done, one of our outfit changes has to be like, one of our costumes needs to be our Tupac twin shirts. Yeah into it. All right, let's move on. We have a special guest in the studio with us. And by studio, I mean my dining room. Um, Angela Carter is here. Uh, Let's go around and introduce ourselves and say our pronouns. I'll start on Rachel and I use she, her pronouns. I'm Melody. I use she, her. I'm Angela. I also use she, her. Cool. Angela, hello and welcome. Hello. (laughs) We're super excited to have you here, Angela. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. I've never done a podcast before. This is my first podcast ever. Yay. We're glad you're, we're your first. <laughs> That's what they said. Um, you want to get us started, Mel? Yeah. Well, Angela, can you just give uh, listeners just kind of uh, your bio, however you want to like just okay. kind of say who you are, what you do, all that good stuff? Yeah, I can try. Um, I'll just say a few things and then if either of you know that I missed something that's important, you can yeah. um, prompt me. I am a PhD candidate at the University of Minnesota in Feminist Studies 
And my work specifically, my academic work, looks at um, discourse and uh, sort of public narratives of PTSD and trauma and sort of thinking through how American culture thinks about trauma post 9-11 particularly. Um, and I'm doing that through feminist disability studies, which um, I think we'll get to in some of um, the conversation today. But through thinking through PTSD and trauma um, as a social constructor, as a system that is intertwines with racism and classism, um, sexism, all the other sort of um, social systems of power and oppression that we think about. So thinking about mental illness as a part of, of that um, matrix. I am a first-generation college student, so the first one in my family to go to college, um, and um, I graduated from Truman State University in Missouri and then went up to Minnesota, so um, I think that's me. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. So just to dig in to some of the, the ways in which you study what you study, um, you also use um, CRIP theory. And so my first question to you, and then you self, you didn't say this, but um, I'm assuming that it is still true that you self-identify as CRIP. Yeah. Okay. So if you could just like break down what CRIP theory is and why you identify as CRIP and, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, if that's part of a reclaiming or just kind of for those of us who aren't familiar with CRIP theory and that whole community, like what all that means. Um, and how it's yeah, connected absolutely. to uh, the disability justice movement writ large. I, that's like a dissertation-sized question, or maybe okay. master's. We have uh, thirty minutes, so <laughs> go ahead. Um, but I will do the best I can. I'll also say that um, I thought a lot about um, asking Rachel the, oh, maybe we should um, record this podcast in the morning when I have better sort of cognitive abilities. And then I thought, no, maybe I shouldn't do that. Um, cause that's part of my internalized ableism is sort of always wanting to give the world, um, my best or to engage with outside, um, people or outside things when I can pass as able body minded. And so I thought, well, no, actually it would be better to do the podcast at, the evening time where we're recording it now and just say part of my disability is that at the end of the day my brain is tired and I might have a hard time making sentences or finding the right words and rather than hiding that foregrounding that because that's um, part of the politics that I'm trying to work out in myself so I guess I'll start by saying that if I miss a word or need a moment to rethink of the sentence that's part of my um, part of my reality so um, I guess crip theory, to give a quick overview, sort of came out of um, two um, movements at once, one in academia and one in sort of activist artist spaces. So very similar to how queer became reclaimed, both in um, activist artists, um, sort of liberation movements, and in the academy around the same time. And it's unclear where the reclaiming started, but they play off each other. Crips sort of did the same thing. Um, So there are two academic pieces that are really um, the foreground or kind of um, canonical pieces. One is an article by Carrie Sandall that is, I think the title, if I'm getting it right, is Queering the Crip or Cripping the Queer. Um, and it's looking at solo autobiographical performances. So looking at um, artists, activists, performances um, of queer disabled people. And so um, 
Sandal is working in that piece to think about the overlaps of queerness and disability um, in this in performance art as a form of activism. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was one of the first pieces that used the word crip in this sort of reclamation of, say, of taking back of a word that was used in a derogatory sense, cripple, um, and bringing it back and saying, no, this is an identity and I'm using it to push against the systems of power that are trying to oppress me. And then in, I believe, 2006, um, it might be 2004, I'm not sure on my citation, um, Robert McCrew wrote a book called Crip Theory that really dug into thinking through disability um, through what we're usually used to thinking of as queer methodologies, but um, sort of thinking through disability and queerness together and how they overlap. And so in that book, McCrew writes out um, his theory of compulsory able-bodiedness and thinking through how in the same way that um, heteronormativity pushes us into a compulsory heteronormative, cisnormative framework, um, ableism pushes us to an able-bodied norm and then marks all body minds that can't uh, fit into that norm as capital O other, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so he sort of really delves into queer theory in that way. So that was you know, a few decades ago now, but those are the two um, leading pieces that sort of, um, at least on the academic sense, bring out um, looking at disability outside of the sort of um, typical these body minds are othered and we need to um, show pity for them or show sort of um, inclusion maybe, but crip, if I'm, I'm going in circles, this is what my brain does. Crip theory rather is instead of sort of just accepting the categories of disabled and abled, crip theory would be looking at challenging these categories, right? Mm. Who gets to determine who's disabled and not? What counts as disability? What does disability even mean? Um, how do we think about disability in relationship to race and class and gender and sexuality? And so um, CRIP is a, um, I believe it's Eli Clare talks about it as um, a word that forges a politics um, in the same way that, that queer does. Um, does that make sense for that first part of the question? Totally. And I'd say outside of academic spaces, the people that I'm super into uh, right now that think about CRIP as an activist artist um, politic are um, Sins and Valid folks out in the Bay Area. And I'm particularly rad right now uh, and have been for a while about the work of Mia Mingus and of Leah Lakshmi Pepsina Samarian. I'm going to say I said that wrong. Sam. Sama Rasingha. I'm working very hard to learn how to pronounce um, their name right. So, Leah, if you hear this, I apologize for butchering your name. I am trying to do better. Um, They are super rad activist artists that are doing really awesome um, crip disability justice work in the world um, outside of the sort of um, higher education realm. how I think it's a part of struggle for disability justice is that um, I think what I just said is that rather than just sort of accepting the terms of, of pathology or the terms of um, categorization of difference, right? The way that like the medical realms might categorize some body minds as abled and other body minds as disabled. So they're just accepting those crypts is really asking us to question, well, what does it mean that some, that certain people and institutions 
and systems and ideologies have power to make these determinations, mm-hmm. um, and then and then set up life chances based on these determinations, um, and to really think about disability as um, to situate disability as a political question, um, and so it's not just about including disabled people, but really thinking about the politics. Um, of disability in, in these various systems. Is that making sense? Totally. Um, our next question, I feel like you sort of hit, uh, touched on a lot. Um, we wanted to ask you about its relationship to queer theory, but I think you have an origin in the academy. Yeah. So can I actually ask a follow-up question, if it's okay, um, about can you talk more for others who don't um, know the term pathology? Pathologizing and mm-hmm. pathology, I can't. I'm pathologization. Not pathologization. <laughs> um, can you talk about why sort of disability justice and and politics would say to people who think that disability need or should be fixed, yeah. um, particularly maybe even use autism, autism as, a, as an example. I think a lot of people might, that might be a good entry point for some people. Okay, yeah. So I um, would maybe take even a step back. So let me take a step back and then get to your question then that way. So... Um, Disability, um, crip theory and um, crip disability justice and politics is really coming at disability from a um, what might be called a radical or social or um, critical model of disability. Mm-hmm. And so in disability studies um, and disability sort of justice world, there are models or sort of approaches to thinking about disability. The first one is the medical model, and that's how we're all sort of raised in hegemony and society to understand disability. And that... The medical model is um, says that um, a disability is something that's wrong with an individual body mind, and our job is to fix or cure that that um, body mind um, to make them as close to normal or get them back to normal as possible. And if we can't, then we at least tolerate them, right? And so it's really based on a um, on a label or diagnose or pathologize, which is sort of the um, mental disability label, right? So sort of to categorize you in some way and then try to fix you or get you as best close to normal as possible. Uh, and so there was a lot of pushback against that during the disability rights movement, disability liberation movements, um, which started in the, um, I mean, they have farther origins back that got really a lot of movement in the 60s and 70s in Berkeley um, and in the UK too, saying, wait a minute, this is really this is really messed up. There's nothing wrong with me. Just because my body mind is different than yours doesn't mean that there's something inherently wrong. And so it started to think about disability as a social construct, right? And so if you think about um, deafness, for example, being deaf or hard of hearing wouldn't be a disability if you lived in a place where everybody spoke AFL or everybody um, signed in some way, right? It only becomes a disability when we live in a world where ASL isn't thought of as a valued um, language or community or culture. Um, or similarly, being a person who uses a wheelchair only becomes a disability because we live in a world where buildings um, are only built or traditionally built with stairs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the social model of disability came out of the disability rights movement, and that really started to look at the problem of disability, not in the body minds of the individuals that have naturally occurring or um, even if they acquire their disability, but just human variation in body minds, um, that the problem wasn't in the various human variations 
um, of, of body minds and of abilities, but rather in a society that has ableist ideologies and ableist buildings and structures mm-hmm. and, and ways of doing things, right? So that shift said, no, 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 the problem is not the individual that needs to be fixed, the problem is society that needs to be fixed. Mm-hmm. And that's super rad, but there are some limitations to the social model because um, you know, fixing ideologies and barriers will take us a long way, but at the end of the day, I'm still going to have massive pain in my body mind, and having a like more accommodating workplace isn't going to change the fact that I have headaches every day, mm-hmm. right? And so that my body does have pain, and so I need to think about how can I address the pain in my body, and also the um, and also the the barriers or the limitations in society, right? Um, the social model made a distinction between impairment, which is something that you have in your body mind, and disability, when society disables you through um, ableism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is that all? Um, yeah, okay. totally. So then um, what happens from there is feminists, uh, race theorists, um, lots of critical thinkers, activists, um, rad folks started thinking like, okay, the social model is super rad. But we wanted to get a step further and think a little bit more about not just about not just how society might disable us, but how these things are always deeply intersectional, right? So we need to think about how um, experiences of disability are um, really shaped by race and class and gender and sexuality. And so we have to think intersectionally about all these things. And we also have to think about, we can't just think about the social, we do have to also think about the body-mind, because the body the body is real, and the body-mind is real, and the pain is real, and the body-mind is real, and we can't sort of um, shame people for wanting to address that, right? And mm-hmm. so a deaf person who chooses to get cochlear implants isn't a sellout. Mm-hmm. They're trying to figure out how to move through the world in whatever way they need mm-hmm. to, right? Mm-hmm. Or a person with mental, we see a lot of this, I think, today, a person with mental illness who needs to take or chooses to take medicine to help alleviate mental suffering, there's nothing wrong with that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that that is, that is a choice everybody needs to make on their own, right? right? So it's, again, trying to think about the nuances of disability with the self and society in more complex ways. Um, so then your question was, I wanted to go back to that for some reason, I can't remember now, but then your question was... Just the, um, well, I thought an entry point, you gave a ton of good concrete examples that I think will resonate with people. I was thinking about autism and the sort oh, of, sure. um, the one, the idea of wanting to fix people. You addressed yeah. that. Yeah, so. autism is a great example that people are getting more um, aware of and that a lot of folks are sort of when um, autism diagnosis is first started to happen, it was like, oh, we need to, so there's something wrong with autistic people, um, we need to fix autistic people, teach them how to be normal, normalize them in all of these ways through behavior um, therapy. And now they're super rad um, people, activist scholars that are really pushing back on this and saying, no, 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 autistic folks just have um, a, a different neurology, right? Mm -hmm. They're neuroqueer and neurodivergent. Their brains just work differently. There's nothing wrong with them. They don't need to be fixed. Um, Society needs to understand that different minds work in different ways. Mm -hmm. And so that's where a big movement came from um, to think about neurodivergence or neuroqueer Mm -hmm. um, as sort of alternative ways of being in the world. Yeah, cool. Um, That was so much awesome information. Thank you. Well, um, listeners, we'll we'll make sure we have links for all this really great stuff. Um, Angela's referencing. I should have told um, people to like take out a notebook 
Yeah. And like start yeah. taking, I mean, I know who Angela is. So I like brought my notes or I brought paper and pen. Cause it's like, yeah. I know Angela's going to say shit that I'm going to want to write down. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I'm like, Oh great. I'm in class again. Let me, yep. uh, yeah. Um, so Angela, I was going to shift to talking about, uh, some of your work, uh, that you've done around classrooms and trigger warnings, but did you want to, before I shift, did you want to add anything about kind of this general discussion about crip theory and, and where you fit academically? Um, yeah, I can try. I think that I'm kind of coming in um, to, I guess I can say that, um, I don't know, on a, is it okay to just talk on a personal note about yeah. how I'm coming in totally. to all of this? We say a ton of personal shit. Um, yeah, so I guess my story is about um, 10 years ago, I was in a pretty um, intense car accident, and um, I died for a while when I was in a coma and had lots of um, various things um, happen to my body and mind um, that left me disabled. And so I realized after that point um, how limited my feminism had been and how limited my even queer theory or queer activism and um, and work had been because I was able-bodied-minded and so I never had to think about disability. And I say this to forefront my own sort of limitations and then when I became disabled, I realized that I was missing a whole other pic- part of the picture without thinking about how the body mind experiences the world in such um, in such intense ways and also on how ableism structures all of our lives, even if we're able body minded, right? Mm-hmm. Even if we don't have a disability, we are still um, conditioned and coerced and compelled into thinking through ableism and thinking in ableist ways about ourselves and other people. And so that became really, um, like it was like something clicked for me. And I was, um, I, through queer theory, got to disability studies and thinking about um, how society maps meaning on the bodies, right? Because a lot of queer theory talks about that, right? How we how we see certain bodies and then attach to those bodies um, all kinds of different meanings, and whether that's race, class, gender, what have you. And the other part of that that I hadn't thought of before was was about ability. And so I'm coming into um, disability studies sort of uh, late in the game, I think, in in that uh, in my activist career. Um, and playing a lot of catch up. And so I, one of the reasons why I cited particularly Leah and um, Mia's work at the beginning is because I'm still learning from a lot of rad people that are doing awesome work all over this country. Um, I'm still learning too. Um, but in my work in academia, I'm part of a group of folks, I think, that are trying to look at um, how to look at mental illness through the disability justice lenses and through quip theory lenses in a way that wasn't done a few, like, uh, 10 years ago or so, mm-hmm. right? So dis- disability studies is sort of has its, you know, ways is a problematic metaphor, but has its phases or its different sort of approaches. And um, just like feminism has sort of white women's feminism and it has to work against disability studies, has to fight against its whiteness. Um, and there's lots of work being done on that front. And one of the other um, limitations of um, sort of where disability studies started was that it was very much focused on physical disability. And so in recent years, there's been much more attention being paid to mental disability and cognitive disability. And so I'm thinking particularly of my mentor, 
um, Margaret Price's work on, um, on mental disability. So I'm part of the group of um, scholars now, or I, I put myself in genealogy with the scholars now who are trying to think about disability justice and frameworks of understanding disability when disabilities are less apparent or invisible and how society um, sort of understands those those disabilities in similar or different ways than we might more apparent disabilities like physical disabilities. Uh, did that answer your question, Melody? Yeah, I just wanted to give you some more space to kind of talk about some of just any anything that you wanted to add that maybe we missed. Um, but I did have like one follow-up question, and then I'll ask you about classroom stuff. Um, and is it, I guess, a, somewhat of a transition? But in your classroom um, and in other professional spaces, uh, can you talk a little bit about whether you do or do not like kind of come out as crip? And yes. um, because, and, and I'm asking it from a somewhat personal level because I I would have some mental illness that I could share with my students, but I never share that and I barely talk about it on the podcast either and so could you just talk about like the vulnerability in identifying as such and the benefits and possible issues that you face that's also could be a whole other podcast Um, okay we have 10 minutes so (laughs) (laughs) short then I think that it is a double-edged sword um and so I began coming out um, as disabled in my classrooms after great um, challenge from one of my other mentors in my department, Eden Torres, who um, really pushed me to come out um, as disabled in my classroom. And I realized um, how much more authentic it was for me to do so. And it was a really interesting moment because I was very, I'm very quick to come out as working class. I'm very quick to come out as queer. I'm very quick to come out as femme and and all all these other things. But I realized that I wasn't (coughs) quick to come out as disabled because I thought that it would automatically mean my students would not give me the authority that, um, like not see me as a knowing subject, right? Because we're taught, we're not taught to see disabled folks as, as um, as people with knowledge, right? And so I realized that it was just as much of a political move for me to come out as disabled and to say, this is what disability looks like, which is actually a great um, um, photo project on the interwebs if you're interested, um, to say, no, that this is what disability looks like um, and that I can be disabled and and be, be in a PhD program um, and, and to challenge that. And since I've come out as disabled and started coming out as disabled in the classroom, I've had... Um, great, amazing, actually transformative um, feedback from my students. I have more and more students come out to me every semester as disabled. I am seen, I think, as an ally um, and, a, and a sort of a person that my students can come to and talk about their experiences. So as far as teaching, um, it has been nothing but amazing to me to be out in the classroom as disabled and to use my experience as a disabled um, queer person in the classroom um, in various ways to to talk about why we make these accommodations or to say to my students, I'm giving you these accommodations and as your instructor, I need these, I need you to accommodate me in these ways because these are my disabilities and to mm. sort of create a class we are all in community and we all accommodate one another um, in various ways. And so as far as teaching has gone, it's um, I love that that I, it's been amazing. As far as professionally, it's more of a mixed bag. I feel like I've lost a lot of friends, um, and not in any outright way where people have been like, 
I don't want to be friends with you anymore, but in ways that I feel very secluded. Um, I feel like people are like, don't understand why I get accommodations um, because I appear able body minded to folks who aren't used to seeing the signs. Um, one of my disabilities is a traumatic brain injury. And so um, I, I can pass. And so when people don't know me, they don't know um, what those signs are. And so then it's like, well, why does why does Angela get all of these other quote extra things? Right. When they're not extra things, they're they're. Um, accommodations that help me be on the same playing field as my colleagues. But what I think has happened, or what often happens, at least professionally, um, is that folks don't know how to deal with it, right? They don't know how, they're not used to thinking about um, a PhD student as as disabled. And so I've, I haven't, I feel like I've lost community um, in that way, but I have found it in um, crip community and disability studies community and in other places. Um, so I guess what I'm getting at is the ableism of academia writ large has shown itself to me after I started coming out more and more and more. Um, so there are definitely, it's definitely a political choice. Um, and I understand why lots of folks don't want to come out um, or come out selectively, but I, um, I now come out all the time as um, as disabled and crip. I really like your um, your comments about being co-accommodating, you know, that I'll accommodate you in these ways and you accommodate me in these ways. Um, so that's definitely something I'll think about um, when I'm talking to my students. And I guess uh, just a follow-up question to that, which was kind of my main question for you, was you, from your point of view and your experience, um, like how can we as, uh, you know, quote unquote, well-meaning professors accommodate students better? Um, and I know that you have done a little bit of research or a lot with uh, trigger warnings. And if you want to throw in kind of like how those, and we talk about trigger warnings on this podcast a lot, actually, um, but never through the disability justice lens. Um, and so kind of a, a two-part question of how can we accommodate students better? Um, what does that look like to you? And is part of that trigger warnings? How does that how does that come up with accommodations? Um, so a couple things. I think um, one thing that's been really work, use, useful and worked well for me is that at the beginning of every semester, I ask the students um, to let me know how they understand themselves as learners, how they learn best, and how I can help them learn. Right. So I ask them to self-report to me. Um, you know, do you understand yourself as a visual learner or do you learn best in small groups? Or I ask them to self-report to me to the best of their knowledge. And then I use that information to think about how I structure the classroom. Um, that's been really helpful. Another thing that I do in terms of accommodation is I, um, because I understand um, accommodation and I think more about accommodation. And so I'm thinking about these things in two different ways. So to accommodate somebody is to keep the system as it is, but to give them something to, to give them something to help them work in the system as it's set up. Right. Mm. So, um, if I am being accommodated, like I am being given something extra to help allow me to participate in whatever the activity is the same way everyone else is, right? Well, the activity or the structure of the classroom has was set up with able-bodied students in mind. So it's already it's always already established in an able-bodied framework or an able-body-minded framework. So I try to think about access rather than accommodation. And access would be a shift away from helping the individual be accommodated into the norm 
to changing the norm so that the most people possible could have access to that information or to that activity, if that distinction makes sense. Um, And so I try to think more about access. And so when I um, talk to my students at the beginning of the semester, I say there might be plenty of reasons why this classroom or activities might not be accessible to you or why you might need accommodation. You might work for jobs, you might have kids, you might not have internet access at home, you um, might be an English language learner, you might have a learning disability, you might be registered with disability services or not because you don't have insurance to get documentation to register. So for whatever reason, if there's any part of the syllabus or this class that you think is not accessible to you, please come talk to me immediately. And then I have the students come and talk to me and I have them explain to me why they think it's not accessible. And then I work out with them some way to make it more accessible. And if they're registered through the DR, to the, what we have as the DRC Disability Service Center, if they're registered through Disability Services, then I follow the accommodations listed on the Disability Services website or letter. But if they're not registered through the Disability Services, because to be registered through Disability Services, you have to have medical documentation that you have a disability. And that is in itself is a barrier for a lot of folks, right? And so I accommodate folks whether or not they have that documentation or not. Um, I encourage them to get it and I help them with those resources if I can, but I accommodate them whether they do or not. And if they if they do not have that documentation, I will sign up, set up an individual contract, right? Where I'll say, okay, this part of my syllabus doesn't work for you, so let's see if we can change the assignment and you're gonna do this differently and these are our new deadlines and I write it all out and they send it and I sign it and I file it. And then that is sort of the individual contract between me and that student to accommodate whatever need that they might have to change the class so that it works for them. Um, or I change the whole assignment for everyone if that's if that something to do. And I don't know if I could potentially get in trouble for this. I don't know. I never asked anyone if I could do this. Mm-hmm. I'm just doing it because it's what I think is right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I, my biggest answer is how to accommodate students is ask students what accommodations they need. Um, I will say to your mentioning earlier about having a deaf student and having an interpreter one thing that your listeners might have noticed is that even though I have a brain injury, I talk really fast and I have had to work very hard with working with interpreters to learn how to talk slowly and slow down and slow down the pace of my classroom, slow down the pace of conversation um, to be um, to be accommodating to interpreters and to deaf students that are managing translation. And so that is an accom- just the accommodation of speed is something that um, I'm still learning how to do better at, but I think is really important. Um, and as far as the trigger warnings, I think about trauma as a disability, um, and I think about, and as a mental disability, and so I think about trauma as, and in the classroom as something that needs to be accommodated or addressed in order to create a learning environment that is accessible to everyone. And so I, um, I do give trigger warnings in my classrooms. I, um, I don't give trigger warnings for any readings or anything that I assign for students to do at home. I will um, often give a heads up if I, if I know, okay, this reading is going to talk about this topic. I'll give a heads up. But I don't do trigger warnings for things that they read at home because for me, the thing about um, being triggered is the surprise, right? When you don't know what's coming and you don't have control or or you don't have the ability to um, control the situation or take care of yourself in the situation. And so I give trigger warnings, um, or and I'm playing around with what I call them, trigger warning content notes, or even 
um, mindfulness notes. I've, I've played a lot with the language of mindfulness in my classroom and say, let's think about, we're going to have this conversation about this difficult topic. Let's think about, let's, let's be mindful of the fact that people in this room will have experienced these violences and let's be mindful of how we communicate. Um, and let's be mindful of how we can take care of ourselves and each other during this conversation um, to kind of step away from trigger as the experience of violence and put the focus on care, on, on, on care and healing or sort of care and response rather than just the moment of rupture. So I in I do give trigger warnings or sort of or content notes before conversations in the classroom, but certainly before any visual or descriptive um, material in the classroom that might um, re-trigger or re-traumatize someone, um, because I think that, that is um, a point of access. I think it's a point of access. If you are not able to be present in your body mind, you are not able to learn. Like there's not a conversation around that for me. Mm-hmm. That's just true. Yeah, and it's. It's it's part of the trigger warning, like mainstream media conversation that is never included. Like right. that, everything you just said is not what people say. People talk about whiny liberal students. Like it's just it's bananas. So thank you for articulating that. I do. Th- I know we're at the end, um, but I do think that one thing with the like whiny liberal students that I talk about is I do think that there's a very big misconception about trauma and triggers mm-hmm. and that a lot of people use that language colloquially mm-hmm. and in ways that um, aren't actually reflective to what trauma and triggers are for folks who have mm-hmm. mental distress. You know, people will just offhandedly say they're triggered in the same way that they use ableist rhetoric to offhandedly say, oh, I'm so OCD, I had to clean my house. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, that's just ableist. You don't and like you don't have OCD just because you want to clean your house, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think I do a little breakdown in, with my class where I explain this is what trauma is. This is what trauma looks like. Here are some of the symptoms and signs and experiences mm-hmm. of trauma. This is what I being trauma or experience, being triggered is not being uncomfortable. Being triggered right. is not being outside of your comfort zone. Being triggered is being completely taken out of the present moment right. in your body mind. And so I, I go, I have a whole conversation about right. what that means so that my students know that I am not talking about a oh, white person you feel uncomfortable because right. we're talking about race and you don't know how to do that. Right. That's not the same thing right. as being triggered as a formerly incarcerated person and someone is, you know, saying microaggressions about prisoners. Right. right? Right. So I do couch that conversation. Um, And I think that's important to say, because I think that's also something that's not talked about in mainstream conversations is the wide misunderstanding of, of these words that completely, completely. Um, we are, we are getting close on time. So I do want to sort of wrap up with something we've had requests from some listeners to talk about, um, being disabled in sort of the age of Trump and really wanting to be out in the streets or be doing all these things that are really inaccessible depending on various people's body mind. So what advice do you have for crip activists? Because I know you've thought through this as, as an activist. For disabled folks, we have to think about how us access can be things like podcasts or blogging, and you certainly do have to do more than that, but you can engage on social media with people, and that maybe maybe some days that is your form of activism, and that isn't without merit if that's where you're at. Um, if you have the financial means to, to donate, one thing that, even if it's just a little bit, um, something that I think 
a lot about doing um, is even if I can only send $5 of a donation or $10 of a donation, that's another way. Other things that you can do is if you're someone who can drive, you can set up to be a driver or you could set up to be a, a reprieve place where after the protest, people could come to your space and, um, mm -hmm. and debrief if that's something that you're able to do. Or you could be the safe phone call so that if things go down and they need to call somebody to mobilize to get folks to the police station, you can be the person that does the phone calls. Or there's sort of behind-the-scenes work that you can do to organize that can be really important. Yeah. Um, or things like, oh, I well, I'll draw this poster and, and set that send that post around, yeah. things like that. Um, and I think a lot of it is being kind and understanding and compassionate towards yourself to not internalize the, oh, I have to go, I have to be the person that gets arrested or I have to be the person that scales U.S. Bank Stadium and the banner. Maybe not, but maybe you're the person that that does put it all over social media and say, look at how important this is for all these reasons and not let other people talk down to you because that's all you could do in that moment. Mm -hmm. I think that's what I have, but I know a lot of other disabled activists um, have said much more about that than I'm remembering in this moment. So there's a lot out there. Yeah, we can link to some stuff. I know um, the podcast Vegan Warrior Princesses Attack just had an episode on accessible activism, so folks can check that out too. What are you changing? Who do you think you're changing? You can't change things. We're all stuck in our ways. It's like trying to clean the ocean. What do you think you can drain it? Well, Angela, thank you so much. We'd love you to stick around for our final segment, RWL. What are you reading, watching, listening? Are you in? Yes. Okay, cool. So I can start. Um, I just finished while I was sick. Uh, I got the Laura Jane Grace memoir. Um, it's called Tranny, which I say out loud only because that's the name of the book. Um, and Laura Jane Grace is a transgender woman who is using that title as, as a sort of provocative, you know, way to talk about the, that the way that pejorative term is, is projected onto her. Um, she's also the lead singer of one of my favorite punk pan, punk bands against me. Um, and so it was a really wonderful experience to read. Like she was literally writing about shows that I had like been at in basements in Cleveland and like was Whoa. just writing. About yeah. And like my, like she, what a person I dated back in Chicago, like lived at the house where they produced their first EP. And I was like, Oh yeah, Jordan, that's Chuck's friend. Um, like, like, so I was like feeling very nostalgic and very punk as fuck. Um, and it was also just like a beautiful and sad, um, reflection on their dysphoria. Um, uh, and it's just a really, and it's a, like a super quick read. I just, I just loved it. And I read it in like two days and it was, it was fantastic. Um, I'm, I just watched, um, I was really into the first season of Sense 8 and they, before getting into season two, they released, uh, what they called a two hour Christmas special. It wasn't like warm and fuzzy Christmas cause Sense 8 is not really a warm and fuzzy show. Well, sometimes it is, but anyway, I watched that Sense 8 two hour Christmas special and then I've been listening. So Polisa, I don't think they're local to Minnesota, but I yes, heard them they on are. They're from Minneapolis. Okay. I knew I heard them on the current a lot. I couldn't remember. I associate them with Minneapolis. So, okay, I'm glad I'm glad I'm giving a shout out to Minneapolis. Um, so, yeah, Polisa put out a new album, like, not, I mean, like, not super recently, but I just discovered it, like, within the past couple weeks. And there's this song lately on the new album that I really love, and it's really pretty. 
That's it. Uh, yeah, Polisa is awesome, and just uh, this is totally relevant to the show. Uh, the lead singer is super invested in this uh, uh, environmental justice action. We're trying to shut down this company called Northern Metals that has uh-huh. uh, they burn stuff and it pollutes North Minneapolis. And she lives mm-hmm. up there with she has at least one child, and her child has asthma now and like breathing pr- or no like lead. I don't know. Her kid is like directly. Uh, like directly impacted by Northern Metals. Yeah. To make a yeah. long story short, her band or Polisa played a show on the river across from Northern Metals. Oh wow! A couple months ago, and yeah. it was the best show I I've seen in a long time because they projected images onto Northern Metals because it's like a big wow. warehouse. It was yeah. it was an art show. And a music show. It was just amazing. And it was on a houseboat that they parked, like, on a grassy area or right up against a grassy area so people could watch. Yeah, that's rad. That makes me love them way even more. Yeah. Cool. They are very cool. She is not from America, I think. So that's where it gets kind of, you know, like, you might not connect to Minneapolis right away. But they are a Minneapolis-based band, so... Okay. Cool. Okay. Anyways, um, I ha- I'm actually not listening to anything new, so like that is my music. That's what I'm. Great. Okay, that's my music uh, well. contribution. Reading. I had to read this old. Th- well, it's a new book called Old Wheelways, and it's about 19th century bicycle paths, and it was <laughs> written by an old white historian, and just read. You know, it read as such, and it was. Right. Uh, Anyway, so that's what I've been reading, and I'm now writing a comparative book review. Oh. Love it. Um, and then another continuation of what you're talking about, uh, Robert and I were just watching a bunch. We binge-watched Transparent last night, like four or five episodes, yeah. and now we're yeah. in season two. So okay. we, I just Awesome. Are you liking it? Yeah. No, we love that show. I mean, there's so many, like, yeah. parallels to our life, and, like, just, it's just awesome. Um. So my, I, I can do mine. Yep. I'm reading Anne Sekovich. I think that's how you pronounce my last name's book, Depression, A Public Feeling, um, which is a part memoir, part critical essay book, um, thinking about depression as a social construct and as a sort of um, so social feeling, right? Um, and so I'm really into that. A few years old, and it's been on my, on my staff for a while. So that's what I'm reading. I am not yet, but looking forward to watching um, the newest season of Sherlock on the PBS because I'm super into that. I'm a big fan of um, Benedict Benedict Cumberbatch. Cumberbatch. (laughs) So I'm excited to watch that. And I've been also listening to a Minneapolis-based band um, or artist, Dessa. um, I was rocking some Dessa on the plane over here. She's um, Doomtree is the band that um, Dessa plays with, but I've been listening to it. Um, I think Jesse uses she, her, I'm not sure. Um, solo albums. I'm really into that. Cool. All right. WTF. Power. Woo! <laughs> Woo! <laughs> okay, bye. I haven't met a locked door yet That I couldn't be On a chain around my neck I keep my skeleton key Don't waste your worry on me Always find what I need Come and go as I please I've got my skeleton key Don't waste your worry on me Always find what I need
was not 100%. Don't waste your worry on me. Always find- 